This episode of the Pellicle podcast is sponsored by Hand and Heart. Hand and Heart is a business and workplace consultancy. We educate people, we solve problems, we guide growth, and we nurture teams. We believe the workplace will transform over the next five years. We have experience with businesses of every shape, size, and industry. We've worked with over 80 businesses in the last five years, and we've educated over 250 owners and employees using our business ecosystem model. By keeping things digital, we keep it affordable, and we are available worldwide on your time. We're giving Pellicle listeners a free 30-minute advice session. You could be a business owner wondering what the hell DE&I means, or you're at a loss of how to even start your business or develop systems to improve your business. We can help you. To sign up, head to www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle and register. That's www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle to book your free session. Thank you for listening. Now enjoy the show. Hello there, and welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis. Today's episode is an interview with a really good friend of mine, Katie Mather, writer, editor extraordinaire, and the co-owner of a fantastic bar in Clitheroe in the Ribble Valley, just north of here in Manchester, called Corto. And I'll be chatting to her for about half an hour, all about the bar, all about her writing career, and lots more besides. So stay tuned for that later in the show. First, the eagle-eyed among you may have noticed that we have a new logo. I thought it was time just to freshen that up a little bit. I was using a logo that we got when we originally had our first logo designed for our website, but I wanted something that helped the podcast stand out from that a bit. So I asked our designer, Tita Bradshaw, to knock me up just something a little bit different. And as always, she delivered something spectacular. Sorry if you were looking for the podcast and you couldn't find it because the logo's changed colour, but I hope you like the new logo and thank you to Tida for that. Before we get to today's interview, the first thing I want to dig into, because I think it would be remiss of me not to, is to go through some of the bigger news stories that have been happening in beer over the past few weeks. Now, I don't want the Pellicle podcast to turn into a news show or a current affairs show. But I also think it's important to sit with this information and consider it, even if it's in a shorter way rather than the long form way I often do on this show. And the first piece of news I want to talk about is from the United States. And it's that Monster Energy, who make the very strong energy drinks in the very big cans, have acquired a group of breweries known as Kanaki. Kanaki was founded a few years ago by a brewery in Longmont, Colorado called Oscar Blues. Oscar Blues is actually one of the largest craft breweries in the United States, according to the Brewers Association. But a few years ago, they took a massive amount of money from a private equity firm called Fireman Capital based in Boston, Massachusetts. And this allowed them to form Kanaki, which involved them acquiring a number of other breweries. There are currently six breweries in Kanaki, including Oscar Blues themselves, Cigar City in Florida, Perrin in Michigan, Deep Ellum in Texas, and a couple of others. But to most of you listening to this podcast who are in the UK, the two breweries you've probably heard of are 
Oscar Blues and Cigar City, which is why this story might matter to you. And it should matter to you because we're talking about monster energy here. This is a multi-billion dollar multinational company that's part owned, about 19% owned by Coca-Cola, the largest beverage corporation in the world. It represents a couple of things. First, that soft drinks companies are increasingly looking to get into alcoholic beverages, including beer. And this could have ramifications in the US with more soft drink companies and other businesses outside of beer looking to acquire craft breweries and in the UK. A few episodes ago, in episode 27, I discussed my feelings towards one particular buyout. So I won't go into too much detail into that now. And I will encourage you to go back to episode 27, where I discuss the acquisition of New Belgian Brewery by the Australian firm Lion. But I do worry about the precedent that these acquisitions set because of what it means for small independents and their access to both supply chains and the market. But the other thing that interests me about this particular sale is that Kaneki as a collective took this huge amount of private equity and that time was up. When you take private equity, you need to pay back that investment significantly within a small number of years. And there are breweries in the UK that have a lot of private equity invested in them. Breweries like Northern Monk in Leeds and Brewdog, who I will be discussing, I'm sure you're over the moon to hear, in a few moments' time. But it means that these breweries that took private equity a few years ago are on the cusp of the next stage in that, which could be floating on the stock exchange. It could mean another acquisition. There's going to be a lot of activity, especially as there's a lot of debt in the market as breweries have expanded ahead of the pandemic, which has caused a market slowdown. Just look out for companies like Monster. Let's give some examples like Britvic, Coca-Cola. They could come in and look for craft breweries. Another interesting nugget to come out of this particular deal, though, is the reaction from the Brewers Association, the trade association that looks after as they say on their website, small and independent craft breweries. That's literally the first thing it says on their website. Now, Oscar Blues is a massive brewery. It's not particularly small. With private equity, you could easily argue that it hasn't been independent for a long time. But it's a good brewery, and I actually have known the person who is now the head of operations for Kaneki, a chap called Tim Matthews, because he used to be the head brewer at Oscar Blues, and I've interviewed him a couple of times over the years. And he's a great guy with an immense knowledge on the supply chains for ingredients within beer. But the reaction from the Brewers Association was particularly curious because shortly after the deal was announced by Monster and Kaneki, the Brewers Association released a statement to say that they will still classify Kaneki as a craft brewer because Monster are not a beverage alcohol company and their definition of craft beer only counts if the acquired brewery is acquired by a beverage alcohol producer like Heineken or Carlsberg or Anheuser-Busch InBev. This is very strange to me because surely with Monster buying breweries they become a beverage alcohol company. They now own the means to production for alcohol. So they're a beverage alcohol company, right? Am I getting confused here? The other thing is that a multi-billion pound company is allowed to own a brewery and that brewery is still allowed to be called Kraft. Why is that? 
Well, it's because the Brewers Association, to achieve its ends, and that's lobbying government for the beer market, to achieve this, it needs a large amount of positive data. And the majority of that data comes from a handful of its largest members. Now, in the past, they've had to remove some of those large members. Breweries like Goose Island, which was acquired by AB InBev, and like Founders, which was acquired by San Miguel Mahu in Spain, they no longer form part of that data set that the Brewers Association use. But by keeping Kaneki in with this rule, it means that data remains. What this demonstrates to me is that the Brewers Association is definitely fixed on supporting its larger members because I don't see how this benefits its smaller members. Probably the largest amount of its membership in terms of the number of members, but the smallest in terms of the revenue that it gets. It's a very curious decision and one I will be watching closely over the months. And how do I feel about this buyout? I talked on episode 27 about getting emotional about buyouts, but having known Tim for a while and knowing Oscar Blues, this just feels like exactly the kind of path they were going down. I felt like they were on this path for a long time. So I don't have a particularly strong emotional response. I'm just like, yeah, that makes sense. As I always say with these things, though, I hope that the beer remains of great quality so that people can still enjoy it. With people like Tim at the helm, I'm confident that in the short term, at least, that will continue to happen. The next piece of beer news I want to discuss also relates to episode 27, where I discussed Lion and New Belgium, because Lion, somewhat shockingly, have announced via social media that they will be selling their two UK acquisitions, Four Pure in London, who they acquired in 2018, and Magic Rock in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire, who they acquired the year after. They have released a report via a publication called The Grocer in a great article by a journalist called Daniel Wolfson that basically shows those brands have not been doing very well. And you know what? I am not surprised in the slightest. I think you have to look at these two brands completely separately in this regard. Forpure and Magic Rock represented two very different approaches to the craft beer industry. Forpure was always quite corporate feeling. It was always gunning for a similar market to, say, Camden Town Brewery or Meantime. Very clean, very modern brands, but not particularly out there or weird. They felt pretty safe in the Lion portfolio, along with brands like Little Creatures. But what's interesting to me about Four Pure is that initially the development of Lion's brands in the UK was being led by Daniel Lowe, who, along with his brother Tom, was the founder of Four Pure. And I interviewed him several times about his plans, one of which was to bring the Lion New Zealand brand Panhead over by opening a taproom on the Bermondsey Beer Mile and had lots of interesting plans for the Four Pure and Little Creatures brands. But at some point, not too long into Lion's tenure of Four Pure, he was shown the back door along with his brother Tom. The most significant thing from that was that Four Pure had a complete rebrand, dropped their spirit of adventure, tag and lost what I felt was intrinsic to them as a brand in the first place. Putting Magic Rock to one side for a moment, I presently can't see much of a future for the 4Pure brand. Its sales are down, 
I don't see it competing with Beavertown or Camden Town, which is taking the space that Four Pure sat in. Who's going to pick it up? Will it go the way of Hopstuff and London Fields, two London beer brands that didn't quite cut through like some of the cooler brands like Beavertown and are now disappearing into obscurity? Only time will tell on that one. Magic Rock is... I feel quite sad about Magic Rock because this is a brewery I was definitely emotionally invested in, a huge fan of their beers and their story. Magic Rock as a brand, very different to Four Pure, definitely that weirder, left of centre, fun, character-driven brand with some absolutely amazing beers, including Imperial Stouts and brilliant IPAs. They really were one of the coolest breweries in the UK before they were acquired. But this is really interesting to me because what this dip in popularity through the channels it's being sold to is represented to me is how important in the UK at least that craft beer channel is because when they sold they kind of lost their relevance within the craft beer market which is a lot of bottle shops a lot of independent pubs and similar places like that which more or less immediately stopped stocking their beer even if they did stock their beer the most hardcore beer fans probably lost interest because there's plenty of other cool, innovative, independent brands who, with which they'd rather spend their money. So I'm not surprised that people turned off. Just as an example, sales of Cannonball IPA, a 7.4% West Coast IPA, had almost halved according to the data published by the grocer. When Lion took Magic Rock on, they looked at different channels, the same they were using for Four Pure and for the new Belgian brand they brought over, Voodoo Ranger. They looked towards major supermarkets and they looked to pub chains. And at one point they were even offering free beer in exchange for tied lines, something that my American listeners will be thinking, hey, that's illegal, which it is in America, but it's absolutely legal in the UK to do deals like that. But those deals quickly became public which, again, weren't looked on very fondly by the wider industry. But one other incident that happened to Magic Rock was, during the pandemic, the zero hours contracted staff at the taproom, I just want to state for the record I am fundamentally against zero hours contracts, but these staff, when they could have been furloughed by the company, were laid off by Lion. And this had a ripple effect locally because a lot of people knew someone who worked at the tap room or read the local paper and had seen that this local business had made these people redundant when it could have put them on furlough and kept them on 80% of their wage. I've been to Huddersfield recently and spoken to a couple of people, seen that Magic Rock is not on some shop shelves and in some pubs, and there is a bit of resentment from locals because of this. So it just shows the impact you can have if you don't look after your local market and the people within that local market. Although what I will say is I do feel a lot more positive about the Magic Rock brand continuing to exist in the midterm future than I do for Pure. I think someone might well snap up Magic Rock. I'm just a bit wary of who that might be. But we shall see. For Pure Magic Rock. Lions say they've failed. They're for sale absolutely bizarre. They only bought them a couple of years ago and there's been a pandemic, but now you can see they've acquired New Belgium and Bells in the US and that's where they want to put their money and energy. Really sad for the UK beer scene that, but I hope the people who work at these breweries are not affected too badly by this news. 
Now there's one more piece of beer news I want to speak about and it won't surprise you to hear that that is about Brewdog, which was the subject of a BBC Scotland disclosure documentary hosted by the journalist Mark Daly. Now, a few months ago in the summer of 2021, following the allegations of toxic workplace culture and sexual harassment on the Instagram account of Brienne Allen in the US, a lot more accounts of the same behavior came out all over the world. And one of those was an open letter written by a group of former BrewDog employees who call themselves punks with purpose. And I actually reported on this letter for Navara Media in the summer. And I'll stick a link to that piece in the show notes in case you want to catch yourself up on what happened a few months ago. Such was the size of the ripple caused by that open letter that BBC Scotland began investigating BrewDog and its founder, James Watt, the results of which were broadcast in a documentary on Monday the 24th of January and you can watch that on BBC iPlayer if you're in the UK. Again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you've been following Brewdog, it digs into some things you might already know, such as its marketing schemes and its equity for punk scheme and how the investment it has, its private equity, might mean that investors hoping for a return when Brewdog finally lists itself on the stock exchange with an initial public offering might be disappointed. Although it digs into a lot of stuff that hasn't really been covered yet, such as what's happening with the brewery's Lost Forest project and why not a single tree has been planted yet, and some of the brewery's financial dealings, including some of James Watt's personal financial dealings, like the fact he owns, or according to Watt's most recent statements, owned half a million pounds worth of shares in Heineken, which is, if true, some of the rankest hypocrisy I've ever seen. The man literally hit Heineken bottles with golf clubs and fired them into the air with explosives, and now he's investing in them. I won't go into his excuses here, mainly because he's not posting them publicly. Most of his responses are being posted on the Equity for Punks forum, which you can only access if you've invested in BrewDog. Hardly great transparency, considering the scale of the allegations. But the documentary didn't stop there. It went deep into Watt's relationship with his employees and work. Bear in mind that BrewDog has been accused of being an intense work environment, a toxic workplace culture that has left a lot of people traumatised. Over 300 staff, past and present, have signed this open letter from Punks With Purpose. This is evidence of that trauma being caused. But it goes into his personal behaviour, especially some of that that's happened in America. I won't comment on that here, mostly for fear of being sued. Watt has publicly stated that he intends to take the BBC to court. He's said that he wants to take some of the Punks With Purpose to court. It's all very messy. But I want to put that to one side and just tell you one thing I feel personally and why this is a disaster. We've seen what's happened with McKellar over the last few months and only very recently McKellar has finally begun taking proper accountability for the trauma it's caused some of its former staff. And taking accountability in this sense involves decentering oneself and centering the victims 
the accusers and saying, okay, here's the floor. We will listen to you and take it from there. McKellar battled with trying to control the narrative, control this themselves, but eventually relinquished that control and is actually working with our sponsor, Hand and Heart. Full disclosure for you there. But currently, Brewdog is in a state of, and I would argue it's been in this state for months, if not years, where it's been accused of some pretty serious things, but not the company. The company hasn't really made a statement about it at all. But what himself personally is trying to control the narrative, he is denying the things that have happened. He is attacking the people that have accused him. And he is refusing to take accountability for some pretty serious allegations. He's refusing to decenter himself and go, okay, there are people who say they have been abused, people who have been traumatized, people who probably need therapy to work through this. But he's the one trying to control the narrative and tell them what to do. That is not taking accountability. That is, it's very bad, really. The reason why I'm so worried about it, and I could do an hour show on Brewdog and I'm tempted, but do you know what? I don't want to give them any more airtime than I have already because there's so much other stuff in beer that I want to talk about. And over the past 10 years, I've spent so much time covering Brewdog and I'm struggling to find the energy to keep going on that if I'm being honest. But the reason why I'm so worried is that Brewdog are to many people outside of what I will refer to here as the beer bubble, although I don't like the term. But people outside of the craft beer fandom, Brewdog represents craft beer as a whole. And I've argued with people about this recently, but it's true. If you step outside beer and you look at the supermarket shelves, if you look at the raw data of who is buying what, Brewdog are all encompassing. To people outside of craft beer, their behavior reflects on craft beer as an industry, as a whole, which is very, very bad. And I have seen such limited responses from those within the industry. I've seen a few people have made statements and said they won't be working with BrewDog anymore, even some with contractual obligations that will likely cost them a lot of money. But as an industry, I still see a lot of validation for BrewDog before it is even considered taking accountability for causing this trauma, whether the allegations are true or not. People still sell beer into their bars. People still invite them to beer festivals. In my opinion, the beer industry, in order to be progressive and equitable and become a safe space for everyone, it can't work with bad actors until they have taken accountability for the alleged harm they have caused. This is a huge point because if they don't, if the biggest players in the industry are getting away with behavior like this, then smaller players in the industry will think they can too. It will have a ripple effect and people will keep getting harmed. Toxic workplaces will continue to exist in the beer industry. It's very serious. This is why I was so vocal about the McKellar Festival earlier in the summer, because By working with McKellar before they had taken accountability for the harm they have now admitted they have caused people who used to work for them, it basically enables that behavior. This is very serious. I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast drink beer and love beer. And you know what? Beer is great and there is so much great stuff out there. But I know a lot of people who listen to this show are also people in the industry. Some of you are owners of breweries and bars. 
And I think there's a real opportunity for anyone in a position of leadership within the brewing industry to be a leader, to say, no, we won't stand for this and do something public, do something transparent, do something honest, something right by your workers and something right by your customers by saying, no, we won't work with these people. Like I say, I could do a whole hour on this, but you know what? We've got a great interview coming up, so I'm going to skip ahead to that now. But maybe if you want me to do a Brewdog show, send me an email, matthew at pedaclemag.com. Give me a good reason to, or give me a good reason not to. What I will say is I did mention our sponsors hand and heart there. They've come on because they wanted to offer this half an hour free consultancy. And if you are one of these people in a position of leadership who is listening to this show, there's a 30 minute free consultancy there with the company that's working with McKellar, that's worked with over 80 businesses. I'm really proud to have them as a sponsor. I think it's really great to have a sponsor that aligns with our values as a publication. But yeah, there's a 30 minute free consultation with them there, even if you don't think you're doing anything wrong, but just want to check in, go to handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle and you could book that in. I think that might be worthwhile for some of you to do. It's free. What have you got to lose? Anyway, that's enough beer news for now. Let's get to the main part of this show, an interview with the wonderful Katie Mather of Corto in Clitheroe. Now, I've been trying to remember when I first met Katie. I first became aware of her work online through her wonderfully titled beer blog, The Snap and the Hiss. And a few years ago, I think we first met, it might have been in London, it might have been in Manchester, but beer was definitely involved. But Katie is a person I became friends with kind of subconsciously, just someone who was on a similar wavelength to me. And we've been friends ever since. And it feels like we've been friends forever, if I'm being honest. Speaking of Katie as a peer rather than a friend, she's someone who continually impresses me. She is one of the best food and drink writers, not just beer writers, but she does amazing wine writing, has written some amazing food pieces, including the most read food piece on Pellicle about bread rolls in the United Kingdom that I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably read already. But she just has an incredible way with words that draws you so deeply into a story. You just don't want to stop reading. And she's expanded on that writing in becoming an editor, both here as an associate editor for Pellicle and as the commissioning editor for a new UK wine magazine called Glug from the people behind the beer magazine Ferment, which I have written for for many years. But more recently, Katie and her excellent husband Tom opened a bar, not just a craft beer bar or a wine bar, but a bar that has a little bit of everything, a bar inspired by their trips to northern Spain and the little beers that you get there called a Corto, which is what the bar is named after. It's based in their hometown of Clitheroe, which is about an hour north of Manchester, halfway between Manchester and the Lake District in a place called the Ribble Valley. It's a really beautiful part of the country and a lovely town. Great for a day out if you want to do some hiking and some drinking because it has some brilliant pubs and beer spots as well. But right before the pandemic, at the end of 2019, they'd begun to get this bar ready and then the pandemic hit. They were all set up to be this lovely little food and drink spot and had to pivot and become a bottle shop, 
which was something that was immensely challenging. And yet somehow they managed to stick it out through the lockdowns, doing deliveries. And finally, once lockdowns eased, they were able to get open and welcome people into a place that is part of a growing wave of bars that just doing things a little differently. But one thing that makes it so compelling, to me at least, is that they're doing it not in Manchester or in a bigger town like Preston or Blackburn, but in a smaller town like Clitheroe, where yes, there's a beer scene, but this is the country of real ale drinkers and traditional wine drinkers. And they don't want to drink hazy pints or modern lagers or natural wines and low intervention ciders. They want to drink something they know and trust. So part of their job is educating people on the deliciousness of these new drinks and finding a way to get people interested in them. And something that thanks to Katie's immense writing talent, they are achieving in spades. I sat down with Katie in late October after I'd been up at Corto to do an event promoting my book, Modern British Beer. And this was the morning after. We were a little bit groggy. We'd had a few drinks, but we'd had some breakfast and some coffee. And I asked Katie if we could just sit down and chat. Because as writers and as friends, we talk about this stuff all the time. But it's nice to turn the mics on and dig a little deeper into those topics. I think so anyway. This is Katie Mather of Corto in Clitheroe. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm here in Clitheroe in the lovely Ribble Valley with the one and only Katie Mather, beer writer and wine writer extraordinaire and bread writer, of course. (laughs) Yes. And the co-owner of Corto, a lovely little bar here in Clitheroe. How are you, Katie? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Um, Still buzzing off of the event that we did last night together. Well, that you actually did, and I kind of took some credit for. <laughs> I just talked for about 90 minutes. So, so just for context for everyone listening, we did an event for my book, Modern British Beer, last night and had some beers and uh, a load of people turned out and it was, it was great. And then we went for a curry. Yes, we did. Which I really enjoyed. <laughs> um, so tell me a bit about Corto, Katie, like... Um, like describe it for someone who's never been there before. So basically it's a tiny little neighbourhood bar. We serve uh, natural wine, real cider, craft beer, a few tasty little snacks. We do things like sourdough bread and miso butter. We do pan con tomate, various seasonal things, usually getting stuff from the market and things like that. So basically whatever's tasty and delicious, we decide we want to sell it, but trying to push cider a bit more um around here people aren't super into the idea of cider but they get in there so we do things by the glass um to try and help that along what sort of um what the beers and ciders let's well let's talk about the beers first because if, tr- if we try and talk about beer cider and wine all at once mm-hmm. that's that's just a muddle but like um but in fact before we talk about the drinks like let's talk about the inspirations because you know you spent some time in northern spain and the, the name corto that comes from the Spanish term for a small beer. Yeah, that's really. right. So what what were the inspirations? Where did you pull that from for the bar? Um, so a few years ago now, um, I went to um, a hop harvest in northern Spain in a place called Leon, um, which is sort of a three-hour train ride north of Madrid. 
and I had an amazing time. It was one of the first sort of um, trips that I'd done as a beer writer. And I just had such an amazing time out in the field, literally, like looking at all the hot vines in the blistering sun, meeting all these amazing people. And Lyon itself is such an incredible city that I completely fell in love with it. It's um, ancient. It's like a bit like York in that it's got all this ancient architecture. It's got a huge, beautiful cathedral, but also it has this really modern university and so there's quite a lot of people coming and going of various different, you know, uh, generations. There's people who've lived there for, you know, their families have lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. But there's also people there who've just arrived who are going to the technical university. And then also it's on the Camino de Santiago um, mm-hmm. path. So the route. So there's people passing through it every single day from all walks of life. And I just found that it had such a vibrancy about it because of this. So the word Corto um, originated... It's like literally around this area that they use that word. And it's for a really tiny amount of beer, like you've said, it's smaller than a canya. If you've been to Spain, you know that a canya is what you get in the tapas bars. And Corto is about 100 mil um, and you get the free tapas with it. And so when you're in those tapas bars, they are utilised exactly as they would have been, you know, always. They're very traditional, but you get talking to a just a vast range of people from... You know, old Leonians, I think that's what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, or there's people there who, you know, they're from... I met some people from Canada who were there studying engineering, you know, all sorts of different people. And I just love this feeling of generosity with the free tapas, with this teeny amount of beer, which we were encouraged to do by every single Taverna owner as well. Why are you buying a glass of wine? Just get a tiny beer, you get the food for free. The welcome that we received. And generally just how at ease and at home we felt and we just kind of wanted to bring a little bit of that to our town Mm. and so how does that idea translate to a bar in the Ribble Valley well first and foremost we just wanted to make it somewhere that was welcoming and I know kind of the idea of our bar does seem a little bit pretentious um so we wanted to kind of bring these things like natural wine that um, you would kind of assume was a bit hipstery and bring them to a wider audience of folk that just live here. I like it and I wouldn't consider myself a hipster, although I run a neighbourhood natural wine bar. I probably am one now. Yes, and edit a wine magazine and <laughs> an associate editor in a beer, wine and cider magazine. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but I think what the main thing is that we just try and it's a warm welcome Anyone can come in, sit down, order, you know, a pint of cask um, Mm. or, you know, a glass of wine. Uh, We'll talk to you about it if you want. If you want to be left alone to read your book, absolutely do that. And it's kind of the main thing for us is that everyone feels like it's a chill place to just sit and enjoy themselves. And then the enjoyment of the drinks and the food that we sell are kind of secondary to that almost. Mm. It's, Mm. it's It's a kind of part of the enjoyment as opposed to you are coming here to tick off every single thing that we sell. Yeah. yeah. Although, I'll be honest with you, that's exactly what I feel like I want to do. <laughs> I want to tick off a glass of cider, a, a, a beer, some wine, and then some pan com to heart, and then a, and then a gilder. <laughs> oh yeah, the gilders, yeah. Um, but let's talk about that beer offering first of all. Like, how important, you've got a cask, you've got one handful, and you yeah. told me earlier, you're doing pins, so a four and a half mm-hmm. gallon cask. So you're open Thursday to Sunday, right? That's right, yeah. So how, like... Like how essential is having that cask offering? And let's talk about the lager offering as well, because you do, uh, you have a house lager, Braybrook Keller Lager mm-hmm. from Market Harbour in Leicestershire, but you serve that via the Czech Luca tap, yeah. which is almost like a sparkled lager, right? Mm. So how important are those, like, let's call them pint beers? Yeah. Bearing in mind your bar's called Corto. <laughs> like, what's the, what's the significance of, of, of those two beers for you? 
well, the significance is that I live in the northwest, and so people are generally pint drinkers. If they're coming in for a beer, um, people want to have either a half or a pint of something really delicious. And I also couldn't bring myself to run a bar that didn't have a cask offering. Mm. That's what I like to drink most of the time. And so it would make absolutely zero sense for me to own a bar that just didn't have cask. Mm. Being that it's really small and that we're only open for a certain amount of time during the week, uh, we have one cask line just because we want to serve it as perfectly as we can and keep on top of it. And so that also means that we can kind of change, well, we change it all the time the offering so it's not just like one standard bitter that we sell you know you'll come in and you'll have something slightly different every time um at the moment we're selling quite a lot of red willow we've had neptune we've had wishbone uh we've had some rivington cask and the best thing is that people come in who are you know hardened cask drinkers as much as people who come in for natural wine and everyone wants to taste the cask because they're like oh we didn't expect that you would sell that which is funny to me but also i really love that kind Mm. of surprise element i guess that cast can still make people go ooh, which is cool because i think it's awesome um the lager we chose um it took us a while to choose a lager that we because uh, there's so many great british lagers we wanted it to be completely fresh and we wanted to be able to say it's a british lager as well um tom was really keen on getting the luca tap because um he just he's a bit of a geek <laughs> first and foremost <laughs> but also like he was just like I want to serve this as perfectly as possible and it just deserves it it's got this kind of attribute to it this keller lager that does remind us a little bit of like a bitter it's got this multi backbone that really chimes well with people's tastes around here and so serving it as you say it does feel like sparkled in a way it's very familiar to people but it's still got a very authentic like sort of Bavarian taste so yeah that's absolutely what we love about it absolutely like um we opened the tasting with it last night quite deliberately because I wanted to drink like drinking lager off a Luca tap that that light carbonation you get is uh, and it, the way it brings the hop aromatics out mm. of the beer um it's lovely but it was interesting to you know we had the camera local camera group in yes. um and they they seem to largely I don't maybe not 100 percent but largely really uh, really enjoy it. I mean, there was one table that ha- ordered them when they arrived, and yeah. then like, oh, you're having another one of these anyway because you paid for it yeah. one and you take it. <laughs> but they they're regulars um, th- that table, and they always drink it when they come in. They'll have a couple of halves of the Braybrook, and then they'll move on to some wine, and that's generally what they do, or some sours. Mm. And that's kind of become a tradition for quite a few of our customers already. Is that they come in and they'll say, right, well, before I look at the board, I'll have a Braybrook, and then I'll move on. That's great. Yeah. And your other house beer uh, is. From Rivington, mm. uh, not far away here here in the northwest, and it's their core beer, uh, I guess. Never known fog like it. I like to call it the the steady rolling man killer. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like the next level of that sort of like accessible, hazy, juicy beer. Mm. Like, d- does that beer appeal to them as well, or are you getting different people drinking that? Uh, everyone drinks it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> they can't make enough of it, honestly. We we go through a heck of a lot of. Uh, never known fog like it and um it's known colloquially as fog or uh, the best beer in the world uh, by quite a lot of our customers and they said that not me so mm. i love that that they come in for fog um we're really proud that we're basically the only people in clitheroe who can sell this beer um and i it was the first one that i chose for our lineup i just said 
I'm having this, definitely we have to have fog on all the time as our house pale, because I just think it's brilliant. And I've always rated the beers at Rivington, but fog has always been the standout for me. You actually wrote about Rivington just before their expansion for Pellicle, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, so you probably didn't expect at the time to be, well, maybe you knew, but <laughs> I didn't, that you would be selling it. And, you know, is is that haziness, is that opaqueness, is that a barrier to these this sort of real ale heartland, if you will? Well, it, it doesn't seem so. It's um, It's a talking point if anything um mm. people love to pick it up and try and look through it they, they think it's quite amusing how because it obviously it's called never known fog like it mm. it's basically opaque like you just cannot see through it and folk like to talk about it and say things like um oh i don't normally like hazy beers but this one's delicious and i just feel like i want to then ask, it, it starts a conversation so what is it about hazy beers that you don't like and things and it really mm. gets people thinking about beer and how it's changed and what they like about it and then hopefully after that they'll go out and they'll try new styles of beer as well um i just think it's really um it hasn't put anyone off honestly mm. you'd expect to pour it people be like oh no that's off that but people way past that now i think we're we're into a stage of it being a talking point and you seem to do a lot of sours as well which mm. i find really interesting like vault city that's really popular here why, why do you think that is like fruit really fruity modern mm. sour beers uh, just a tasty. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of it. Simple it's, as that. It's funny that uh, we sell a lot of Vault City um, and they're not from around here and you would expect also that people would prefer to drink local beer. And you mm. do get people coming in and saying, what's most local beer that you've got? And that's what's, you know, Rivington is probably the most local beer that we have most of the time. But with things like Vault City, um, people just like the, some of them like the novelty of the idea of some of the flavours. So we've got a strawberry and dragon fruit um, souring at the moment that people are going a bit nuts for. Yeah, I drank some of that last night. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we always have a sour on tap and um, it's currently um, Vault City Cherry Session um, and that's doing well already. But in the past, we've had more sort of traditional style sours. So mm -hmm. when we... Um, when we opened, we had uh, Tilkan's Goes, sorry, uh, we had um, Burning Sky Saisonete uh, on recently, and that sold like mega rapid. And we were kind of expecting to, for that to be quite a hard sell um, because, you know, it's it's not fruity, juicy, sweet. It doesn't appeal, you would think, to a mass market audience, but because of its difference, people were tasting it and going, oh, I really like that, actually. And we love to be able to, do that you know bring people to a style that they would not normally have tried and you've got eight taps is it yeah we've got um six uh keg and one cask and then we've got the luca yes yeah so uh, would it be right in saying clitheroe is, is a bit of a wine town but you've brought a different style of wine lighter hmm. more acidic wines more modern wines you could call them natural wines Oh, you know, it says on the board, all it's all natural, all baby. Natural. <laughs> <laughs> That's Tom's doing. <laughs> it's brilliant. But like, like in a, in a town that does enjoy a glass of wine, mm. how has that completely? You flip that kind of offering on its head. How has that gone down? Um, it's we're still in the process of uh, encouraging people to try natural wines. We've got a wide range of different styles of natural wine as well because some people come in and they just want, you know, the chunkiest, funkiest stuff, mm. and that's great. We've also got stuff that's kind of like will ease you in. It tastes, you know, like a conventional wine would, but a little bit more alive, or like this is a pet nat. Maybe you've not tried one of those before. It's a little bit like 
something you might have drank elsewhere. Um, I think giving people something completely different um, is always going to be a bit of a difficult sell to start with, but it's something I'm personally really passionate about. So whether, you know, I'm making my life harder or not, I, well, which I definitely am, it's it's important to me. It's something that I really want to share with people because I just love it. Um, but yeah, you're right, Clitheroe, people do like wine. I mean, we've got Burns's wine shop that's been here for over 100, I think maybe 150 years. Um, we've got Wally Wine Shop in the village next door, which is absolutely amazing. And they've just expanded uh, to have a, a like a bar type restaurant. Well, not a restaurant, but, you know, snacky bar, kind mm-hmm. of like us a little bit, but way like different. It's more upmarket and you can go in there and have some ridiculous wines by the glass. And so people like wine around here, but I think natural wine is a step beyond. And that's something that we're really trying to kind of encourage with a few events. And that's why we do things by the glass as well that you wouldn't normally do. Mm. We had like dope by the glass recently, which weirdly sold out. And we were just like, this is the weirdest wine that I think this town's ever seen. But people were just going a bit wild for it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me to see that the way you just talked about the beer, you know, and beers like Never Known Fog Like It, which, you know, five years ago, would a town like Clitheroe be going nuts for an opaquely hazy, juicy IPA? I, I don't think so. But it, when I travel around now, like a good beer bar in a small town is like de rigueur. Like that is what is happening and mm, that is becoming absolutely. normal. So do you feel like natural wine is probably, and, you know, we're going to get into talking about the cider as well. Like, do you feel that's, that's something that will gradually normalise as people get used to the ideas like actually you can have these big lovely tannic red wines and classic um, fresh whites but we do something a little bit different I think so um, people are definitely intrigued by it for sure and they uh, when you start talking to people say oh tell me about natural wine what's the difference the thing that people tend to latch onto the most is its environmental aspect. So, you know, the lack of um, pesticides and herbicides and things like that. People are really interested in that now. And I think that's only going to increase. So, and it's the same with natural cider as well. When I talk to people about about natural cider, they love the taste of it when they actually taste it. It's not something that they're super familiar with. But the thing that really sticks in their mind is the stories that I'll tell them about like keeping um, orchards alive and not grubbing up the the trees and the ecology of the area and you know all of these environmental factors it's becoming much much more important to people in a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm. What do you think is the biggest barrier for people who like you know know they like wine what's the biggest barrier to get them drinking natural wine, you know, bearing in mind that Jay Rayner only this weekend in his lovely review of Erst, which is well deserved, he did describe natural wine as like like a bum wipe or an arse wipe or something, right? <laughs> like, like, do you think that kind of rhetoric well, is pleasant? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Do you think that kind of rhetoric is making it more challenging for you to get people into these wines that, for me, do not taste like arse wipe? <laughs> yeah, I think. People do have their preconceptions about it, like they do with everything. Mm. Um, and it's it just takes a little taster, I think, sometimes to bring people around. Some people just don't want the taster, which is absolutely fine. We've got plenty of other things for people to try. But um, if someone's come in with the idea that it tastes disgusting, but they're intrigued by the description that we have on the board or something, I don't think it's... I don't think it's um, a strong enough preconception to stop them from trying the natural wine. They've come to a natural wine bar at the end of the day. Like it's it's in the back of the mind that they might want to try it. Um, but I'm never going to force anyone to do it. It's not for everybody. You know, some of the wines are on the, 
what some people would consider maybe even fault, faulty side. You know, the, there's bits and pieces of flavours and aromas that you wouldn't normally expect to find Sometimes in Sometimes there's actual bits and pieces in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. And so this is something for people to get used to. But one of our best-selling um, natural wines is actually um, a Col Fondo um, Prosecco. And... Um, people come in asking for Prosecco and they drink it and they tell us this is the best Prosecco I've ever drank. I'm like, well, it is actually one of the best in the world. We get it from Bonvino. Um, it's called Malibran and it's absolutely amazing. Um, but that then turns their head and they think, well, if natural wine can be like this, mm. then I want to try other stuff. And it's slightly hazy. Like, you know, it, it, it's not a usual wine, but it tastes familiar in that the, there are touch points that they can relate to, but it then goes off into a different tangent. And that's what I find so fascinating about it. Mm, it is a delicious wine. In terms of cider, who's your who's the person that comes into the bar and drinks cider? Is it people curious about beer? Is it the wine drinker or is it a different person entirely? Because I guess your cider offering is part of the new wave of cider that's really gone mad in the last two or three years. Um, but you also do Nightingale cider do. you know, on draft. Um, so who, who is your cider drinker that's coming into Corto? Um, there are actually quite a lot of people who drink cider by the pint. And so we've got um, Wild Disco Cider by Nightingale, as you mentioned, and we sell so much of that. Um, I emailed Sam to tell him how well it was going down in the northwest of England because I just thought, this is really cool. It's, mm. it's a cool thing. Um, the um, bottles of cider, they are a hard sell at the moment. It's not something people are used to. They're looking at a menu, they're saying a 750 bottle of a mill bottle of of cider and it costs how much? They're just still not used to the idea of it. Um, we will get there. I'm doing it by the glass and I'm hoping that people want to try more of it. But the people who come in who do want to try more of it have probably already become acquainted with natural cider. So we have folk travelling from Manchester, Bolton, you know, various other places, Sheffield as well. We've had people come for cider because mm. they know that we sell it. Um, hopefully I'm... Hopefully more people get braver with cider. But yeah. yeah. What do you think is the next step for cider like that? Because I you know, cider's really gone through this change and I see there's a bit of resistance from the mm. cider traditionalists within that. Like, do you think um it'll happen um uh, use the word naturally here, like people will just become more accustomed to these seven hundred and fifty mils, brands like Little Pomona, mm. uh, Fine and Foster, etc. Or do you think it's gonna need a bit more of a a push do you need to be out there circling around saying oh we've opened this today do you want to give it a try this is you know this is a pom-pom from mm -hmm. Pilton I'm just mentioning that because that's the best cider I've drank this year it's absolutely <laughs> amazing but like like how like do you think there's a little bit more of a push needed from folks like you to get that done it's definitely more that um when we open a bottle and someone sees it that's when they become interested um the the bottom of the fridge where all the bottles are that to me is intriguing if I was to go somewhere and see a whole bunch of like brightly coloured bottles and I want to know what they are but I think for the most part people are just like oh that looks expensive I don't really want to try it in case I don't like it that's generally the barrier that's in the way so yeah if we do open a bottle to do it by the glass we'll keep it on display and we'll always mention it to people I'm not trying to upsell but I'm just saying this is available as well as this stuff mm -hmm. and it's completely different to anything would you like a free taster of it because I just want people to engage with it a little bit more and it is it's it is hard to get people to engage with it I'm trying to figure out why that is because people have different expectations of cider than they do to wine and beer and mm. I, I don't really, I'm trying to understand why. I don't really know. I don't have any answers to that, but I'm just trying to sort of get around it. So Katie, one thing I'm really interested in is 
why did you decide to open the bar here in Clitheroe? You know, it's a small, medium-ish town, has a little bit of tourism thanks to the, the castle. But there are towns around here like Preston. I mean, we're not far from Manchester. Mm-hmm. Why open Corto here and not open it somewhere that already had a bit more of an established scene? Yeah, um, well, Preston is a great place to go out right now. There are so many amazing bars in Preston and it would have been a good choice to probably open there. But... Clitheroe is where I've moved to about 10 years ago and I consider it my home now. This is somewhere I want to live for a very long time, if not for the rest of my life. And I saw there was like room for somewhere like Corto because the people I know here are into similar stuff that I am. And I we go out in Hebden Bridge, we go out to Manchester, you know, we, we like sampling different things, but there was nowhere like that really in Clitheroe to have all of these things in one space. Years and years ago, me and Tom, who's my husband, who's also the owner of Corto, um, he we came up with the business plan vaguely about five years ago or something like that. And the main thing was that it was going to be in Clitheroe. And it had to fit the town, but we also wanted it to be completely different to everybody else because we didn't want to step on anyone's toes. There's quite a lot of good beer places to drink here. You know, like there's some traditional pubs, there's places like the Ale House that do craft beer really well. There's the, obviously the beer hall, which is absolutely massive and does so much cask. Um, it's it's a great place to go and drink beer, but like there was no natural cider, no natural wine. Um, and I wanted a different provision of beer as well, more kind of um, traditional and out there barrel aged sour things like that you know projects Mm. that are expensive that you have to sell it you know I wanted to do that stuff just the nerdy part of me wanted to have that and then as time went on we kind of honed the idea down a little bit and we're like yeah we definitely could do this in Clearo but we need to make sure you know we tick some more popular boxes as well and this is why I was like I definitely want cask then I think Mm. that's a good seller I really want it and yeah it is it's one of our best sellers so Clitheroe was it was always the only option. It wasn't like we were going to go somewhere just because we, we tend to not do things easily. <laughs> we're not making things easy for ourselves in any where's, where's any in capacity. That? Well, yeah, exactly. Um, but it is just because this is this is where I live. This is what I wanted to do, and this is where I wanted it to be. So you opened the bar pretty much in the middle of the pandemic. Well, well as I said, I didn't like? want to make things easy <laughs> for myself. What was that like? Awful. Um, so as I say, we, we did the business plan years ago. Mm. Um, Tom was an engineer um, for over a decade and then um, decided, you know, actually this is not what I want to do anymore. Um, we, in 2019, found, event, We it took us about a year and a half to find a suitable place for our bar to be that we thought would, you know, be the right size and the right location. It's where it is now, it's on King Street. Um, we found that place sort of the end of 2019 aiming to open for April 2020. Um, Obviously, that didn't happen. Our landlady was really, really supportive. Um, She just kept it on hold for us, didn't ask us for any money throughout the entire 2020, basically, until uh, we started work on it to open it as a sort of kiosk shop at the end of 2020 because you weren't allowed to open hospitality venues, obviously. And then we weren't allowed to have the shop anymore. So we did delivery and it was really hard. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's been difficult for everyone in hospitality. But, you know, we just watched our uh, savings just trickle down to nothing while we're trying to open this bar. Um, But it's here now. This is the main thing. We opened as a bar at the beginning of June. 
Um, the response locally and wider has been absolutely incredible. People have been so positive, bringing that positivity in, telling us wonderful things about, you know, how they want us to do well. They've been following us on Instagram. They come in and enjoy themselves. And that's all we could really ask for. You know, we're just hanging on at the moment, just trying to keep it going. And, you know, I think it's going all right. Yeah. I was going to say, how are things now? And, and, and like, what, what's on the horizon for Corto? What's on the horizon? Hopefully a bit of an easy ride. (laughs) (laughs) I would really enjoy like not having another pandemic to deal with or, um, yeah, it's going well. Like the more people that come in, the more word of mouth it it spreads, you know, um, anyone who's opened a new hospitality business knows how difficult the first year is. And we're sort of only a few months in, in reality, you know, we opened a year ago almost, but that was as a shop and it was very, you know, we can't really class that as the same thing. Um, so, We've got a few months yet before we can start to look at breaking even. You know, it's it's tough, but we're just through sheer bloody mindedness. I think at the moment we're just like we we know what we're doing. We know we know what we're doing is appreciated. We know that people are enjoying themselves when they come in. We just need to keep going, and that's what we're going to do. Well, it's a fantastic place, and I wish you and Tom every success with Thank it because you, you deserve it. And you know, I live an hour away in Manchester, and I'm going to make excuses. I, I'm normalising that train <laughs> journey from Victoria to Clitheroe uh, just so I can come and drink in it's your bar. It's not too bad of a journey. It's not. It's dead easy, and I'll I'll be uh, trying something of a of a semi regular. While I've got you though, Katie, I think it would be remiss of us not to talk a little bit about writing. And before we talk about what what's happening with Pellicle, I'm sure people are interested in what you're working on at the moment, and to talk about your fantastic bread piece, I'd love. <laughs> to talk about that um you're all, you're also editing a brand new wine magazine called glug why don't you tell us a, a little bit about that oh yeah okay um so glug it's uh, run by the same people as ferment magazine which is beer 52 it's um, a wine subscription service but i'm the commissioning editor for the magazine that goes along with that so i'm nothing to do with choosing the wines for that box or anything like that um what i'm really enjoying is getting my teeth into this magazine project finding new diverse voices to talk about wine who kind of would have been traditionally left out of the conversation I'm really interested in hearing stories about wine that haven't that people just haven't usually written about I'm not talking about like listicles or the 10 wines that are 10 orange wines to drink now or anything like that it's things like um drinking cultures in various places uh, indigenous grape varieties environmental issues you know I'm really enjoying sort of getting to grips with that style of that style of writing do you find that um, Corto and the work you do with that, and you get to you know taste lots of wines and go to wine tastings, and <laughs> and uh, is that informing the kind of stuff you want to do? It is um, definitely the more I've gotten to, the more nerdy I've got about winemakers and natural wine world, the more I've kind of really delved into what they're interested in so like the geology of an area the the indigenous grape varieties something I keep coming back to because that's my own personal thing at the moment I'm just raving about these weird grapes that almost died out and people have brought them back and they taste amazing why were they ever dying out and it's you know it's to do with uh, yield it's to do with money basically um and the homogeneity of wine uh in the conventional sense is something that I've, I've I've got quite a few people writing about in different ways and I just think uh, I, working where I work now in the bar it's nice to be able to show people like this is what it tastes like because I have a bottle of it you might have never heard of this grape before like we have an orange wine um, that's just called Catarato because it's made of Catarato grape and it's not something people might have heard of but it did used to just be used as a bulk table white but 
when it's placed when it's skin contact it's this beautiful orange color and it's got so much complexity and earthiness fruit flavors I think there's a bit of ginger in there as well it amazes me that this is the same grape and that someone has just thought I'm just going to leave this on the skins for a bit like what people used to do about 400 years ago and you know what it's a completely different wine now and now that's it's become popular again people are reinvigorating that grape and it's stuff like that that I just find absolutely fascinating about natural wine yeah absolutely you sound like me talking about barley at the moment (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) let me tell you about these heritage grains um and it'd be great to talk about like like pellicle it's so great to have you on the team now as an associate editor like you were one of the first people to write for us uh, about sam jerry and black yes. black ham wine that's who got me into natural wine thank you sam yes well thank you sam and um you then you wrote about rivington uh, at that stage of their journey and um and then you uh, just before you came on uh, as associate editor you um well i i asked you to write i said i want this piece on bread rolls like, and I think you should write it. Um, and it's now the most read piece we've ever published. That's insane to um, me. Why don't, you, ha, why don't you tell us about that? I mean, the book is literally, this is not set up. You've got the William <laughs> Rubel's Bread, A Global History on the table. There it is. It's a good book. <laughs> like, why do you, I mean, why do you think that article has struck a chord with so many people? It, it sometimes gets read more in a calendar month than new stuff we publish. I think people just love to invent that um, argument over and over again, don't they? What do you call this is on the internet all the time as a meme and it's a picture of a bread roll. And the reason I just called it a bread roll and not a cob, not a bap, not a stotty is because we came. I came to the conclusion in that very, very, very long article that um, that's probably the most sort of standardised name for it. Around here, people would call it a balm or a bap maybe but it's hard because it's very culturally it's intrinsic to our local cultures and and that's what I go into in in the article it fascinated me in an etymological sense is that the word etymological yeah, I think so. <laughs> that's because I said it wrong I'm a writer um <laughs> <laughs> what I found really fascinating is I, I spoke to bakers from all around the country to get their take on it as well and um they were all amazed interested is probably the more appropriate word that a writer would come to them to ask because usually people just fight it out amongst themselves and it's more like a a social thing like oh no well this town calls it this or we call it this and it's like a way to it's like sort of rival tribe sort of thing and this is what I found fascinating about writing the article and I think that's what other people find interesting about it too is it's not just about what you call bread it's about denoting where you come from and the history of that region i think that's it at the heart of it there's something tribal about it it's a little like beer in a way isn't it very much so but there is a point in the article where somebody tells me that they're fascinated by the um, etymology of bread rolls in the uk and why they have so many different names within like 10 mile radiuses of each other but there is one word for beer Mm, that's true and no one can really explain why that is. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, but there are, I mean, we've got Lily, uh, she's got an article on uh, Stingo. Stingo or Spingo? It's one of those. Okay. Made in Cornwall. And it's kind of like, th- th- there is this regional thing to beer, I think, is that's going to be uncovered. Because beer, you know, the way it was produced 
in the sort of post-war era, it became quite a homogenized product mm. in the march of the big six brewers. And I think now we've got to this place where there's 2,000 breweries and there are breweries that are looking to like reassert, a re- I think regionality is going to become this really big thing mm. in beer. And because beer is immensely tribal, mm. and like a beer brewed in West Yorkshire that's called a bitter doesn't taste like a beer brewed in North Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. It's called a bitter. Mm-hmm. So, but they are all called bitter. Exactly. So there you go. Um, well, yeah, that article uh, it still goes goes bananas. And thank you to everyone. <laughs> still slaps. Thanks yeah. everyone. <laughs> So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Because you, you, as well as uh, writing pieces, you're editing them, aren't you? Yeah, I'm editing um, a really cool piece at the moment um, about a specific branch of Londis, yeah. um, which is just fascinating. Um, basically, the people who run this Londis um, are amazing cooks and they make delicious uh, Indian food. And I'm really enjoying getting to know them through this article. Katie, thank you so much for joining me on the Pellicle podcast. It's been lovely to catch up. Um, why don't we go out and drink some bitter? That's what I really like in Clitheroe right now. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. We're <laughs> going to go down to the new inn. <laughs> thank you. And that piece by Josh Barry might well have come out by the time I've edited this piece. So I hope people enjoy it. And I look forward to more of your writing on Pellicle. And just once again, every success to you and Tom with Corto it's amazing it's a a really special place not just because the food and drink is is great but like I was here in June and now it's early October and it's already changed like little bits in the bar have changed the board's up the the vibe is sort of like growing into itself so I feel like I'll probably be back here in a month's time and it'll have changed again so I'm excited to see uh, that evolution good luck thank you that's really kind That was Katie Mather, writer and editor extraordinaire and co-owner of Corto in Clitheroe. I know Katie's a good friend of mine and we talk often, but sometimes it's great to turn the mics on and dig into the topics we talk about pretty often, just that little bit deeper. So thank you to Katie for taking the time to have that conversation with me. And you should visit Corto if you can. It's dead easy to get to from Manchester. If you go to Victoria Station, you can get the train to Clitheroe. It takes about an hour. And Corso is literally a five-minute walk from the train station, not even that. So get yourself there and have a lovely beer, glass of cider or glass of wine. And don't miss out on the amazing tapas that they serve. That's pretty much it from me for this episode. Before I go, I would like to ask you that if you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe in the app you're listening on, leave us a rating if you can, And if you're really enjoying it, head to our Patreon page and consider giving us a small donation to help us support this podcast and the magazine. I'm talking about the price of a pint of beer or a glass of wine or a cup of coffee. Just go to patreon.com forward slash mag and you can sign up there from as little as a pound a month. And every penny we get, we will put into the magazine to support our writers, illustrators, photographers and, of course, this podcast. So thank you. And finally, thanks once again to our amazing sponsors, Hand and Heart. I'll be back in a few weeks' time with this long-promised Q&A episode I've been going on about. That is the next thing I'm going to record, I promise. Until then, I've been Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to The Pellicle Podcast. See you next time.